This program is brought to you by Israel Restoration Ministries. What are you doing Sunday nights? Come join Friendship with God radio Bible teacher Tom Cantor of the Friendship with God Fellowship Church every Sunday night at 5.30 p.m. at The Vine at 9336 Abraham Way, Santee, California. Watch and listen live around the world to Tom Cantor Sunday evening on YouTube.com by searching for Friendship with God Fellowship or by going to our homepage at friendshipwithgod.org. That's friendshipwithgod.org. Welcome to Friendship with God with our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor. Today's message and previous messages can be listened to or downloaded for free at friendshipwithgod.org. That's friendshipwithgod.org. You can also obtain free resources from Tom Cantor and view our online bookstore at friendshipwithgod.org or call us at 800-247-3051. That's 800-247-3051. Tom Cantor also has a daily devotional verse that comes out each day by email and on Facebook. To receive this small daily devotional verse that Tom Cantor puts out, you can sign up at friendshipwithgod.org. That's friendshipwithgod.org. Or find Tom Cantor on Facebook by searching for Tom Cantor and Friendship with God. Now, here's our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor. Let's pray. Father, we're your children. We're your students. Teach us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew chapter 19, verse 16. And behold, one came and said unto him, Good master, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? And he said unto him, Why callest thou me good? There's none good but one. That's God. But if thou wilt enter into life, keep the commandments. He saith unto him, Which? Jesus said, Thou shalt do no murder. Thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness, honor thy father and thy mother, and thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. The young man saith unto him, All these things have I kept from my youth up, what lack I yet? Jesus said unto him, If thou wilt be perfect, go and sell that thou hast, give it to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. But when the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possession. Then said Jesus unto his disciples, Verily I say unto you, A rich man shall hardly enter into the kingdom of heaven. And again I say unto you, It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. When his disciples heard it, they were exceedingly amazed, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus beheld them and said unto them, With men this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Now, verse 16 starts off with these words, and behold, there are 280 times in the Bible where we have these two words together, and behold, 280 times. And those and beholds are really saying, when you read those, they're really saying, hold on to your hat. Yeah, well, here we go. You're going to see something you never expected, something that's going to surprise you, something that's going to really be exciting to see what God does. That's what the and beholds are all about. I mean, don't you just love those? They're great, you know, in the Bible. All the, all the and beholds. This is what makes the Bible so exciting. It's all those unexpected and beholds. As a matter of fact, this is what makes our lives 
our lives are full of the and beholds. Just like in the Bible, our lives are full of the and beholds of, oh, I was not expecting that. You know, those and behold, I was not expecting this illness. You know, and behold, I was not expecting this financial crisis to come. And behold, I was not expecting that person to die. And behold, I was not expecting that problem in this relationship with that person. Behold, I, I was caught by surprise by this problem at work. Behold, I was caught broadside by how unfairly I was treated. And just like in the Bible, our lives are full of these and beholds. And just like in the Bible, it's exciting to see what God does with each of the and behold unexpected challenges in life. And when we're faced with an and behold, it's a challenge to test to see how much we really trust God. You know, we say, well, we trust God. We're trusting in God in our lives. And the and behold puts the pressure on that. And the test really comes down to one word, anxiety. Anxiety and trust do not go together. If there's trust, there's no anxiety. If there's no trust, there's anxiety. It's just that simple. For example, if our response to an end behold is, okay, I was not expecting that, but it's going to be exciting to see how God is going to help me through this or what he's going to do as a result of this. And that's a response of trusting God. But on the other hand, if we respond to the unexpected with anger and anxiety and frustration, as in, oh, no, that was not my plan. This is an unwelcome intrusion. It makes me really mad. I'm angry. That's the response of not trusting God. And the Lord Jesus never responded that way. He never responded to the, and behold, uh, can't you see I'm busy? He never did that. Or, you know, you're interrupting me? Yeah. He always showed a gracious flexibility to the change in his plans, which were constant. He always accepted the and beholds in life like a baby. You ever seen a newborn baby? It's got these gigantic eyes that are just looking all over the place and they're taking everything in like they're some kind of a court reporter or something, you know? And that's the way God wants us to be. You know, I had three and beholds adventures yesterday. The first and behold adventure was... uh because a flight attendant didn't come to work and my flight from Loretto to Phoenix was delayed by an hour. That was an and behold. And the second and behold adventure was racing through Phoenix customs and the airport and missing my connecting flight by five minutes. That was my second and behold. But the third and behold was adventure was a little more dramatic. And it came as, let's put on this flight, this other flight three hours later in Phoenix to San Diego when we were 20 minutes into the flight and the pilot came over the loudspeaker and said, now folks, you always know it's bad when the pilot says now folks, you know, he starts off now folks, we've lost oil pressure to the engines, he says, and we're going to have to return to Phoenix, but I want to assure you that the engines are operating, you know, but we'll be making an emergency landing and don't be upset. There'll be fire engines and we're not going to go to the runway. We have to check it all out. That was definitely an and behold adventure moment for me and everyone else on the plane as well. And we hadn't expected the oil pressure to be lost to the engines. No oil pressure means no engines. The engine sees up, the engine stopped working. And, and I was like, okay, it's going to be an exciting adventure. Maybe it's going to be an adventure of going to heaven. That'd be an adventure, you know. Well, sitting next to me on that flight was a Jewish grandmother 
with her 13-year-old Jewish granddaughter from Ramona, and they were coming back from Florida from Pop Warner football cheerleader convention, something like that. And this trip was the first time that the 13-year-old had ever been on a plane, and she was already nervous about flying. It was not a great flight for her to be on, it's the same. And so she grabbed her grandmother's hand in terror and squeezing it, you know, I was like very, very upset. And I tried to, to calm the, you know, I said, I said, would you mind if I pray now out loud? So they said, no, oh, no, pray, you know. So I prayed to Jesus that uh, he would take care of the plane and the crew and the people and, um, and how great he was. And obviously we made it back, you know, otherwise I wouldn't be standing here. And, but um, we spent hours in the airport there. Well, first we spent an hour on the plane, see if they could fix the plane. They couldn't fix the plane. They were in the airport for a few hours. So I bought them sandwiches. And the Jewish grandmother says to me, you know, I can't wait to read your book, Changed. Great. And then sitting next to me on the other side was Alejandro from Mexico. And, and we started talking and I got up and, I, you know, I thought, you know, why am I eating a sandwich? So I got up, I bought him a sandwich, you know. And I told her how I came to Christ and gave him a copy of the book in Spanish. And then we changed gates. And then sitting across from me was Cedric, who was a pastor, been to the Creation Museum here in Santee several times. We had wonderful fellowship together. And he said something. He said something that really got to me. He said, problems open possibilities. And I thought to myself, all these people that I got to talk to here because this problem with the plane. And then we reboarded on the next flight, on the new flight, and they changed our seats. So I wasn't sitting next to the Jewish grandmother and her 13-year-old granddaughter. But this time I was sitting next to a couple who were on their way to a cruise. And for the entire flight, it was, uh, we talked, well, I'll tell you about that later. But anyways, it was exciting. Behold adventures yesterday. So if I seem a little sleepy now, if I sleep in church, I always sleep in church, but if I do sleep in church this morning, you'll know that because I was up so late, pretty late. But see, this is the point. It's the, and behold, there came a leper. And behold, there came a blind man. And behold, there came a young man. And behold, there was no oil pressure in the engine. So this is how this passage opens here. The surprise, it's a surprise. And what is the surprise? In verse 16, one came and said unto him, Okay, so it's who is this person who's come? We know that he's a young man because in verse 20, it says, the young man saith unto him. We also know, not from this passage, but from Luke, Luke 18, 18, that he was a ruler. It says in Luke 18, 18, a certain ruler asked him, saying, good master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? So he's young, he's a ruler, and he's rich. He's a rich, young ruler. And he comes to Christ, and he comes to Christ with respect, a great deal of respect, and he comes to Christ with a serious question. Here's a person that's not like the Pharisees. He doesn't have a question to try to trap the Lord, try to alienate the Lord from others. Here's a person who's not like most who have come to Christ with a physical problem of leprosy, or he's not blind, he's not lame, he's not dumb and deaf. He doesn't, he, there's no demons involved here. There's not a daughter that's just died. There's not a servant that's sick. He's different. He doesn't have any physical problems, but he comes to Christ. And when you look at this man, you see a man who is healthy, he's wealthy, he's young, and he's powerful. And on the surface, he looks as though he has no problems in life. He appears to be what the rest of the world want. 
good health, lots of money, he's rich, great powerful position, he's a ruler, young. I mean, imagine this guy on the tennis court, he's probably got bulging muscles and, you know, he looks like he, he, looks like he is. And he just looks like he's got no troubles in life, no problems at all. I mean, but he does have a trouble. He's got a deep trouble. He's very troubled, in fact, and no one would know it to look at it because the man looks like he has no problems, but he's greatly disturbed inside. And his trouble is that with all that he's got, with all of his health, of all of his money, of all his position, all of his power, his youth, he's troubled about what he doesn't have. This is the difference. This man has everything except for one thing. And this is what's burning inside of him. This man does not have eternal life. And he wants eternal life so badly. If only he could, he would use his energies of his health and his youth to do something to get this eternal life that he knows he doesn't have. But his problem is he doesn't know what good thing he needs to do to get this eternal life. This man who's young and strong and feels that he can do anything that, to get anything he wants, now he wants eternal life. And this lack of knowledge of this good thing that he needs to do to get eternal life is driving him crazy. If only he could just use his money to buy eternal life. But his problem is he doesn't know how much it costs to buy eternal life. And this is a man who has money, and this is a man who has gotten money, and this is a man who knows what it is like to get what he wants with his money. He buys what he wants. He thinks that everything has a price, but why not eternal life? But he doesn't know how much it's going to cost to get the eternal life. And this lack of knowledge of how much it's going to cost to buy eternal life is driving him crazy. If only he could just use, if only he could leverage his power, his powerful position, to somehow get this, this is a man who knows how to use his powerful position to get what he wants, and he wants eternal life. His problem is he doesn't know how to leverage his position to get eternal life. That's a problem. So when we look at this man, you see all of his health, his youth, his money, his power, he's tormented by the fact that he doesn't have eternal life. He has everything in life except for one thing, which is eternal life. And he's just as much in need as a man with leprosy, a man who's blind, a man who's a parent of a dead child, is just as much as need as all those people we've seen so far in the book of Matthew come to Christ. And one thing about all those people who came to Christ that we're just mentioning here, none of them strolled. None of them just kind of strolled over to Christ with no troubles. They ran. Each of them ran, if not figuratively, in essence, with their needs. And he's not just strolling over to Christ to have a, a nice, interesting religious conversation. He's running to Christ with his need. Just as today, no one strolls to Christ. No one strolls over to Christ. They run to Christ with their needs. And just as man knew so well, the one word that tormented him was the word temporary. His health and his youth are temporary. And now he wants eternal life so that he can have eternal health and youth. This man knows so well that his wealth is temporary. And now he wants eternal life so that he can have eternal wealth, which Jesus did address when he said, do this and you'll have treasures in heaven. This man knows so well that his good position, his powerful position is temporary. And now he wants eternal life so that he can have a good position for eternity, like maybe being a son of God, one of the sons of God. And the worst thing that this man knows so well is that Life itself is temporary. 
and he's going to die and he wants eternal life so he'll never die. And this man's soul is plagued with this one word, temporary, and he yearns for another word to replace it, eternal. And that's what's behind him. This man is hoping in Christ. He's hoping that Christ will tell him how to get this eternal life. He knows he doesn't have it and he wants it so much and he wants so much for Christ to tell him, lead him, guide him, instruct him, show him. And so he comes in verse 16 and he calls Christ right off the bat, good master. Now, first of all, there are two words in Greek that you could use for master, good is good, master, and this is one particular word. And he calls Christ in Greek, he calls it didaskali, didaskali agate. So didaskali is where we get our word didactic from, didactic. Didactic means to teach, it means to instruct. The other wording for that they could have used, which he didn't use, is archon. Archon means ruler, you know, like the arch, archangel, the top supreme, the one in charge. He didn't use that word. He didn't use that word to address Christ because he wasn't coming to Christ, the supreme arch one overall. He's coming to Christ as the didaskali, as the teacher, as the leader. That's why he's called Christ, in essence, he's called Christ didactic, which is translated here, master. And the reason he used this all-important word for Christ is because this man wants Christ to didactically teach him, to show him how he can get eternal life. What has he got to do to get eternal life? It's really so much better if we just see verse 16 as reading good teacher, because that's really what he said, good teacher. What good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? So the person is just exuding sincerity. It's just dripping off of me. He's so sincere in his quest for eternal life. He wants it. He needs it. He must have eternal life. And he's come to Christ and he's come publicly. He doesn't care if everyone sees him come and publicly confess that he's desperate to get eternal life. He doesn't care that everybody sees him in this desperate state of vulnerability, not having eternal life. He doesn't have eternal life. He knows he doesn't have eternal life. He needs eternal life. He's come to Christ to find out how he can get eternal life. That's what this verse 16 is all about. He's practically in tears. He just wants Christ, please be my teacher. Just teach me how to get eternal life. Good teacher, he starts off. And when this man calls Christ, good teacher, in verse 16, he's saying to Christ, you're the good teacher, I'm willing to be taught by you as my good teacher. Just teach me how to get eternal life. You're the good teacher, I'm willing to submit myself to you as my good teacher. Just show me what good thing I need to do to get eternal life. He's very, very similar in what he's saying here to Nicodemus. Nicodemus came to Christ by night and his first words were in John 3, 2. John 3, 2, the same came to Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher. Didact didascali, same word. We know that you are a teacher come from God, for no man can do these miracles that thou doest except God be with him. And when Nicodemus said to Christ, thou art a teacher, in John 3, 2, John 3, 2, when he said, thou art a teacher come from God, Nicodemus knew what he had at his heart, even though he didn't say it, but Christ knew more exactly what Nicodemus was wanting. And Nicodemus was just like this young ruler wanting Christ to teach him how to get eternal life. And Christ knew that. So when 
when he told Christ that he was a teacher come from God, Christ knew that Nicodemus wanted him to teach him how to get eternal life. And that's why Christ told Nicodemus in John 3, 3, John 3, 3, Jesus answered and said unto him, verily, verily, I say unto you, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Except a man is born again, he has no hope of having eternal life. In essence, what he said. That's what Christ said to Nicodemus in John 3, 3. All right, you want me to teach you how to have eternal life? I'll teach you, you have to be born again. And so started the whole teaching in John 3 on the subject of the second birth. So this man, this young man, this rich young ruler, addresses Christ as good teacher, and that's, that's how we see Christ here. He said, Christ says, all right, you want me to be a good teacher? I'll be a good teacher. And so we start. So we start. Christ as the section, we could entitle it Christ as the showing himself as the good teacher because he shows a quality in his teaching that is so good. He shows a quality in his teaching that he hasn't rebuffed this man, and the quality is in Hebrews 5.2, Hebrews 5.2, where it says about Christ, he can have compassion on the ignorant people who need to be taught and on them that are out of the way, for that he himself also is compassed with infirmity. What makes Christ such a good teacher is his capacity to have compassion on the ignorant and on those who are so far away. There's two kinds of compassion. You can look down on a person and say, well, I've never been like that, but I have compassion on you. Or you can look straight across on that person and say, just like you. When we think of God, we think of Almighty. We were talking about this in the service before. Almighty, what could God not know? Or the person who is weak in his understanding could say, what could God know about my weakness? to not understand. He's God. He understands everything. He knows nothing personally about what it's like for me to be weak. We think of God, we think that what could God know about a person's weakness to be so far from God, to be so forsaken by God? He's God. He's almighty. What does God know about that like to be weak? And that's where we're astounded with the fact and can't really understand it, how the almighty God did the unthinkable and the unthinkable for God to have done is in Philippians 2.6, Philippians 2.6, who being in the form of God, thought it not a robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men, who being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Words in that passage, Philippians 2, verses 7 and 8, which speak about the unspeakable that God did to himself when it says the words like he made himself of no reputation. God made himself so weak as to have no reputation. No one in the universe has a greater reputation of strength and power than God himself, but God then makes himself so weak as to have zero reputation. Philippians 2.7, made himself of no reputation. Those words like took upon him the form of a servant. Everyone serves God. Everything serves God. And then God takes upon himself the form of a servant. God makes himself so weak as to become a servant to others. Philippians 2.7, Philippians 2.7, he took upon him the form of a servant. He humbled himself, became obedient to death. No one is above God. Everyone is humble below God. All obey God. And then God becomes the person who humbles himself and becomes obedient to the point of death, the most horrible death, the death of cross. Philippians 2.8, Philippians 2.8, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. All this describes how God surrounded himself with weakness 
weaknesses and infirmities so that now God can look horizontal on a weak person and say to that weak person, I know exactly, I know personally exactly what it feels like to be weakened and filled with infirmities. Another wonderful day studying the Bible with our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor, here on Friendship with God. Don't forget that today's message and previous messages can be listened to and downloaded for free at friendshipwithgod.org. That's friendshipwithgod.org. You can also go online to find free resources from Tom Cantor and our online bookstore at friendshipwithgod.org. You can also find Tom Cantor on Facebook, and you can also go to friendshipwithgod.org to sign up for his daily devotional. Tom Cantor is also the founder of Israel Restoration Ministries. You can visit that website at israelrestoration.org. You can write to Tom Cantor at P.O. Box 711330, Santee, California 92071. That's P.O. Box 711330, Santee, California 92071. Or email Tom Cantor at tomcantor at friendshipwithgod.org. That's tomcantor at friendshipwithgod.org. For more information about Tom Cantor and Friendship with God and Israel Restoration Ministries, call us at 800-247-3051. That's 800-247-3051. What are you doing Sunday nights? Come join Friendship with God radio Bible teacher Tom Cantor of the Friendship with God Fellowship Church every Sunday night at 5.30 p.m. at The Vine at 9336 Abraham Way, Santee, California. Watch and listen live around the world to Tom Cantor Sunday evening on YouTube.com by searching for Friendship with God Fellowship or by going to our homepage at friendshipwithgod.org. That's friendshipwithgod.org. This program is brought to you by Israel Restoration Ministries.